Welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast. My name is Mark Lindbergh and I will be your host. Along with my guests, we will explore how science informs hunting by asking why questions. In addition, we will explore how science is used in management. Our focus will be somewhat on Alaska-specific topics, but we are open to other ideas and encourage you to suggest those ideas through our website. Well, welcome back. I'm here with Randy Brown again, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed this first episode on care of meat in the field and this fascinating story about doing what many of us fantasized about or running away to the to the woods and saying goodbye to civilization for, well, 15 years in your case. That's pretty neat. But um, as we talked about, Randy came back, got his education in fisheries, including a master's degree, and then landed a permanent job with Fish and Wildlife Service and has been done some incredible work. And um, there's several uh, parts to his work that are worth talking about, many parts to his work, but uh, two that stand out to me that I know a little bit about, but I'd like to hear much more about is his collective work on whitefish and kind of a interesting collection of species with an incredible ecology that's strange, I guess, from a, from a population ecologist's viewpoint that's mostly dealt with land animals. Um, yeah, they're kind of an odd beast. And then we got a little bit of a uh, story about glowing fish that I've only heard a little bit about, but um, I'm just going to turn it over to Randy and let him decide how he wants to pick away at those stories, and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy them. <laughs> well, I hope so. So uh, when I started working with Fish and Wildlife Service, it was on a, a chum salmon mark recapture project based out of Rapids, which is a really narrow, fast stretch of the Yukon, about 40 miles upstream of the community of, T of Tanana. And uh, we had hired uh, this guy, Stan Zaray, to uh, run a fish wheel for us. Actually, he ran two the first couple of years. And uh, a guy named Paul Evans up in Rampart that was uh, running the recapture wheels about 30, 35 miles upstream of the tagging wheels. And we were tagging about 450 chum salmon every day. Wow. And then the recapture would get them over the next few days because they didn't all take off right away. And and um, anyway, it was a it was a complex mark recapture project. And um, but in amongst all the fish that were all the chum salmon that were coming through were these hordes of uh, coragonids, the uh, white fishes. There were she fish coming through. There were broad whitefish coming through the fish wheel. There were humpback whitefish, least cisco, and bearing cisco, all of them coming through in big numbers. And so we realized this is, this is really something else. These are, this is a major migration in and of itself. And uh, there was a guy, John Burr, who was a, a fish biologist with the Department of Fish and Game that came out to observe at some point. Uh, and he suggested to my supervisor that we should do something with the she-fish because they had never figured out where they were going or, or, or what their life history really was in the, uh, in the river right there. So did any of the people use the whitefish? Um, yeah, they, everybody, everybody used them. They, were, okay. they fed them to the dogs mostly because they had these, these salmon coming through. Uh, but the, the, everybody also really enjoyed a, a, a nice broad whitefish or a nice she-fish. And they were uh, towards the end of August, early September, they started running through in big numbers. And so 
uh, we would get somewhere between 60 and 80 big she fish every day moving through those fish wheels wow. as we were running them. And uh, What's a big she fish? I'm just... A big she fish might weigh, in the Yukon, might weigh 20 or 30 pounds. Okay. Yeah, and be uh, over three feet long. Okay. So I fish for them a little bit, but yeah. not enough to be very knowledgeable about them. Yeah. yeah. The, the uh, she fish out in the Selawick and the Kobuk area are bigger. Okay. Uh, they're, they're considerably bigger. They just grow bigger. It, their migration is not near as far. It's a, it's a really different uh, life uh, than the ones in the Yukon. But the ones in the Yukon, um, like I say, we were catching them, but we didn't know where they came from or where they were going or really that much about their demographics. And so um, after, after this guy, John Burr, had suggested that we uh, figure it out because we were having access to it, we were going to be doing this project for a few years. And so I, um, I approached my supervisor. I said, I want to do this as a master's project. And he supported me in it, and the office supported me. So uh, along with the Mark Recapture was a radio telemetry uh, project with those uh, chum salmon as well. And we had a number of different towers that were in place at different junctions in the upper river. Uh, that was led by this guy, John Eiler, with National Marine Fishery Service. And I was really the Fish and Wildlife Service representative that went around with him, and we put towers up. And I was uh, in charge of putting the radios in uh, during a couple of those years uh, into these into these chum salmon. Well, I proposed to uh, put radio tags in shefish too, and figure out since we had the tower network, the towers were they were they were these aluminum towers with uh, radio receivers affixed to them. They had batteries, solar panel to charge the batteries, and uh, because John was with. National Marine Fisheries Service, he had access to the GOES uh, satellites. And so these things had a transmitter. They would transmit all the data that they were collecting every day back, and uh, it could be downloaded uh, by John down in Juneau. So he knew every day what was going by uh, each one of these towers. So we thought this is a really good uh, opportunity to look at a lot of different fish. And so we started out, we did three years of tagging. And what year is this? Roughly? This is uh, started in uh, 96. Okay. And uh, 97 is when I really got rolling. Yep. And um, so, so the first step was to find out what the demographics of these guys are. And so we started doing a, um, a sampling program with Shefish. And so I asked some of the uh, subsistence fishermen around there if they would uh, dedicate some of their catch to that effort and that we would split them and hang them up on a rack for them after we, after we uh, examined them. And so uh, um, the first day I get this tote and it's got 80 sheepish in it from one night. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and so the next day I'm just butchering all day long. So what we were doing is cutting them open, looking at uh, the maturity, whether they had, um, large egg skeins or not, and all the females had large egg skeins. So they were, uh, and there's a there's a quantitative process. They call it a gonadosomatic index. They, you can see what fraction of the weight of the fish is composed of eggs. And when they're up towards, you know, 20 and 30 percent eggs, they're spawners. When they're down around one or two percent eggs, they're non-spawners. And so we were able to show that all of them were spawners. Uh, the males had had 
they're more difficult to quantitatively assess, but they were uh, they all had larger um, gonads. And then we collected the otoliths, uh, which are ear bones. They are kind of like they're a calcium carbonate structure similar to a, a clamshell, but it, it leaves <coughs> excuse me it leaves a uh, a mark kind of like a tree ring if you cut them and look at them under a microscope and so you can uh, for every year of growth and you can age them in that way and there had just been a there was a new technique that was emerging in the fisheries world um, called uh, otolith chemistry where you look at uh, essentially calcium and strontium and a few other elements but it was most functional for what we were doing uh, uh, looking at calcium and strontium um, concentrations within the otolith because when a fish a freshwater fish goes to sea the strontium component it, strontium uh, ions substitute for calcium in the calcium carbonate there and so when they go to sea that concentration just ramps up so you get really high strontium concentrations during the time a fish is at sea. And then when they come back into freshwater, it drops right back down again towards freshwater levels. So showing my ignorance in fisheries here, are all these fish ocean origin then, all the white fish you're talking about? Or yes. All of them. Wow. Not, a, not every individual gets to sea. Most of them do. Uh, but, uh, um, but all of those populations from the Yukon Flats downstream uh, go to sea. And unlike salmon, most of these survive to do this multiple times, right? Yeah, some of these she fish were, <clears throat> were uh, you know, 25, 30 years old and more. Wow, and may have run 20 years or something? They start, they start uh, maturing somewhere as around eight to 10 years old and uh, might, uh, we've actually done work since that time. We didn't know it at the time, but uh, there are some individuals that make that run from the sea all the way up. We found out from the telemetry that they spawn in the upper Yukon Flats between Fort Yukon and Circle. It's a really wild, braided stretch of river. Right. And that's where they go to spawn. Not only them, but the broad whitefish, the, the, the humpback whitefish, the Bering Cisco, all of them go there. And um, the shefish were very specifically there and not downstream of there, whereas broad whitefish, they spawn downstream of that area as well in the flats. But but that's where they go. So they're going, you know, uh, 1,200 miles. 1,200, uh, wow. 1,700 kilometers up the, uh, up the river and um, uh, to spawn. And then some of them will turn right around and go right back down to the sea. How, how energetically expensive is this for these fish? I how, don't know. That is a good question. How long we does it take them? Well, so one of the projects that we did in the late 2000, 2007 to 2012, I worked with John Burr and we went down into the Anoko drainage in the lower Yukon and put radios into these uh, shefish down there. Um, over, over three years, we were tagging fish just coming in in the spring to feed in the Anoko. We had this theory that all of the upper drainage populations would come down into the lower river, come into the Anoko because it's this giant flat water region and, it, and they, there's food everywhere in there for these sheepfish. Sheepfish are fish eaters and they like least cisco, juvenile uh, whitefishes, juvenile uh, um, northern pike. They like, 
they like small uh, salmon going in their out migration. They, and the, the, the Anoka was loaded with all of these. And they go down, we figured they went down there to feed in the early summer and then would, would then migrate up. And because they were passing the rapids, which is uh, still about 500 kilometers downstream of their spawning area, by, um, by late August and early September. And so we figured they got to stop somewhere downstream before they to feed in the earlier part of the summer. So one thing we found is that some of these fish do this every year. They migrate up and back down every year. Every year. And we're going like, and, and we, would, we would have, you know, the people down at the mouth fish under the ice in the winter for these fish. And that's where we would uh, get our, our harvests. So our radio tags would be harvested down there and they would report them. And so we knew that's where they were going. We didn't really have towers down there because it gets a little too deep. It gets down to 70, 90 feet deep in the wow. lower in the lower reaches of the Yukon, and that's really beyond what uh, a radio tag can transmit through. And so, uh, but they were harvesting them. That's where almost all of our harvests were from our radio tags that we put out in the Anoka River. And so, so um, these fish make that migration. Um, it's, it is irregular. Some of them are every year. Some of them it's, you know, once every three or four years. And so it's probably the difference between a fish that gets to a place where they can feed like crazy all winter in the early summer. Those ones get enough, uh, nutrient put in, uh, to, uh, to make that migration again. Whereas maybe one that stops at a, at a little, you know, stream mouth and it gets a lake chub every once in a while is not going to be able to put that kind of energy aside to support it. And most of these whitefish are pretty, uh, she fish maybe be an exception or have pretty small mouth parts. So they're eating small yeah. food particles, right? Or foods. Yeah. So um, Lee Cisco is probably uh, as small as any of them. Round whitefish also have a very small mouth. Uh, Lee Cisco have a lower jaw that sticks out beyond their nose. And, and so they're they're a pelagic feeder. They swim in the water and they grab stuff that's even or above them. And uh, round whitefish have subterminal, you know, their nose sticks out and they, they are picking stuff off of the bottom uh, for the most part. Same with humpback whitefish and broad whitefish. They're much more of a, of a, of a bottom feeder than, um, than some of the others. I guess my point with that is that they have to eat a lot of, a lot to pull this off. Oh, they right? do. Yeah, and, they do. Uh, and yeah. they don't get like one big food food item. I mean, it's a lot of small food items. So, so one of the things uh, that gives you a hint on on the energetics of this is some recent work that uh, Ray Hander and I were colleagues uh, um, at Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and Bill Carter, who also uh, he works for the Selawick Refuge. But we've been doing this work with uh, with sheepfish out there up the the Selawick and the Kobuk. Yeah. And our samples on the Kobuk were coming from um, a, a state fishing game project that was being run in the lower Kobuk River. And, and a, a couple of months earlier than we were sampling the, uh, the sheafish on the Selawick spawning grounds already. And so they were getting them at the start of their migration. We were getting the sheafish when they had been up there for quite a while and they fast when they're when they're on their spawning migration and and during spawning they don't eat and so and so everything was identical about the kobuk 
uh, male shefish to the Selawick male shefish, except that the um, the weight of the Kobuk fish was about a kilogram heavier at length throughout the whole length range. And we're going like, what is going on? They have growth that's the same. It says length at age is the identical for the two populations. I mean, they're all in the same feeding habitat. So we figured it would be. And it just took us for, it just shook us so that, that they were reliably one kilogram heavier in the Kobuk samples than the Selwick samples. And we finally realized they haven't started their migration yet. Whereas the Selawick, they made their migration up to the spawning ground, and then they've been sitting there for a couple of months not eating. Well, so that's that's the cost we think for those t- two populations. The Yukon, they're going. So the Kobuk is like 350 kilometers or so from the estuary to the spawning area. Yeah, Selawick about two 200 kilometers. And the Yukon is like 1,700 kilometers. So what's the energetic demand there? It's got to be huge. And the flow rates are pretty similar, right? Yukon. I think the Yukon is probably a more constant flow uh, and perhaps a little three faster. Three to five miles per hour? No, I think it's more like six to eight. Wow, okay. Yeah. I mean... I mean, they can find these... Eddies. They, they're working and, yeah. eddies and edges yeah. and, and, and things like that. But, but nonetheless... So walk me through the life of the average sea fish, right? So I'm an egg. I'm up in these serrated so waters in the Yukon. Yeah, they spawn. They spawn in uh, in late September, early October. Okay. And so and and those eggs are they're they're broadcast spawners, so don't, they don't make a red. They just okay. spew them out into the water and they sink and roll around down in the gravel until they find some place. And a bunch of things eat them. Bunch and of things, yeah. Suckers so are there vacuuming them up. And, you might be lucky to hatch. Yeah, and so and so we have no idea about what fraction of them get fertilized or or what fraction of them hatch eventually. Yeah, but they 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 hatch late winter and emerge. They don't really have a really large uh, yolk sac like a a, a, a fresh hatched uh, salmon. So they get they come out of the gravel. They don't even look like fish. They're about you know two centimeters long or an inch long, and. Uh, and downstream they go, and an inch long, mm-hmm. and they <laughs> and they uh, eventually end up probably everywhere possible that the river flows. You know, if it's high and flooding, there's probably a bunch of them go back into off-channel lakes or sloughs or even into the forest. But they got to be eating during this migrate, uh, migration. I'm sure they are, but yeah. it's it's totally silty water, and it's uh, so it's it's got to be kind of. You know, they probably get little sticks. They probably. But they, but they are eating, uh, certainly, and then they get down to the sea. Most of them get down to the sea and uh, at the Yukon mouth. And unlike salmon, they don't go out into the high seas. They stay more in the estuary uh, of the Yukon, which is a very large place, the estuary. And so that's where they live, the lower channels of the Yukon and in the estuary until they mature. And once they mature, they then migrate up to the spawning area. And this is eight to 10 years, I think you said? Mm-hmm. So they're living down there for eight to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it's a little it's a little less for broad whitefish. They mature in about five years. Okay. Uh, humpback whitefish in four or so. Okay. Uh, Bering Cisco, pretty much the, we've had a couple of three-year-olds up there, but most of them are, you know, four to eight for Bering Cisco. Um, 
least Cisco can mature by two or three. So at, at maturity, they, they swim back up and, and spawn in the, in the upper reaches there are the flats. There's also a big spawning area uh, here in the Tanana between the, the Chena and the Salcha River. And so uh, uh, that one also, uh, all of these species except Bering Cisco spawn there, and they also uh, go down to the sea. And they spawn up the Kayakuk River uh, in the Alatna and some other places up there. And uh, those ones also go down to the sea. And they might do this every year for the next 10, 15 mm-hmm. years in some cases? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So there is a, a substantial harvest, you know, that goes on. Yeah. Because every fish wheel catches all of these species. Gill nets catch she fish and broad white fish. Um, if somebody is fishing for a salmon, you know, they have a salmon-sized gill net. Uh, most humpback whitefish, at least Cisco, will go through a salmon net. Um, Bering Cisco will go right through them. I don't. So I don't think most people appreciate hunters, fishermen, the story that fish or animal no. can tell. No. I just just before I came here, I got a call from a friend who was hunting in Mexico. As you know, I work on black brand. Yeah. Yeah. And he just shot a 23-year-old black brand that um, we marked on our. Yukon Delta, and uh, so you knew the age that way. Yeah, we knew it was one we had put a band yeah. on and, and knew its life history, yeah. its story. But you know, it had been back and forth to Mexico twenty three straight years. Yeah, right. And yeah, and birds are are amazing, a t- tremendous uh, analog really to these uh, to these fish. I mean, they even go farther. Although a lot of the fish. You know, if you take the uh, the American eel or the European eel, you know, they spawn down in the Sargasso Sea and in equatorial waters in the open ocean yep. and then ride the Gulf Stream up and peel off as little tiny fish into these uh, into these different rivers where they live for a few years. And they go back and ride that that Gulf Stream around the other way back down into the Sargasso Sea. So that life history was a really challenging one to uh, to sort out. But uh, and and so it was with these fish in the Yukon and and some of the other systems. Totally silty river. How do you know where it's going? Um, and you can tag them, and that's what with dart tags. You know, they're a little, they're like a a, a little close uh, hook that you know where you t- stick something onto a, a sweater or something and let's say what price it is. But yeah. but these little tags get uh, inserted in under the uh, under the dorsal fins and have a number on them. But you got to recapture it to know where they went. And so you only catch a very small fraction of what you put out. And so it tells you what's possible, but not tells you what the population is doing. And that's what the, the radio tags did and the otolith chemistry work did. Yeah. Um, it's so, so this, this is what got me interested in the profession to start with, to be able to tell stories like that. That's yeah, so yeah. fascinating. And, and I don't think people appreciate how capable these animals are of moving. There's... A local story that I won't get in the weeds about too much, but a guy that's decided to feed the mallards here in Fairbanks during the winter, and because he he wants to save them, and I keep saying they they'll migrate. They're so capable of that. I yeah. mean, we have birds we mallards we ban here at Minto Flats that show up in Mexico, yeah. and you know making it to Anchorage, three hundred fifty miles to the ocean is nothing. For yeah. these animals, right? They'll do it in a day. Yeah, they can do it in 
yeah, yeah. in a day. And, and fisheries, it's even more hidden. Um, you know, as you pointed out, silty water, and you don't see them. And I don't think people appreciate that. I was down watching the Chum Run come up the uh, Delta River. You know, those fish, I think I figured out they were probably a thousand miles into migration at that point. Yeah, they are about that. Yeah. yeah. And salmon, of course, have other things going on. Their body parts are coming off them. Yeah. But still, yeah, they're they making are. these incredible surges up these shallow areas. And it's just it's just amazing what they're capable of. Well, and then chum salmon, they are down in the North Pacific during their uh, ocean phase. So they go Chinook salmon from Western Alaska, more or less stay in the Bering Sea, but the chum salmon go right through the Aleutians out into the North Pacific. So, uh, yeah, they, they're big travelers too. Huh? Yeah. Well, it must've been really rewarding to piece this whitefish story together though. That was, that's a really neat discovery. And, uh, it is one of, uh, I don't know, I, I think it's like one of these pivotal things that all of a sudden, you know, that you realize these aren't like grayling that live right in this stream all the time. Yeah. These are very different. Yeah. And we really needed some of these modern technologies to sort that out uh, because people had tried before, but it was just really, really tough. Yeah, and I hope people take away when they catch a fish like this or shoot an animal, a bird, like I just described, you know, that they just have some appreciation of what what it took for that animal to get there. And yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I, I hope that comes out of this this podcast. It's, it's a pretty neat story often. Yeah. That'd be great. So I should tell you about the glowing fish. Yeah, we should finish with that. Yeah, okay. so. <laughs> so when I was uh, living in the upper Yukon, I, uh, there, were, there were years in which I fished for chum salmon in the fall. So summertime, it doesn't get dark, right? And so uh, you can hang them and it can rain a lot and, and, you know, you still wouldn't see them glow even if they were glowing in the dark. Um, but in the fall time, you have nighttime. And I was hanging chum salmon on, you know, splitting them and hanging them on these racks to, in uh, early to mid-September. And, uh, and I remember one night, I was, I was by myself at that point, and I was camped under a tarp right next to my fish rack. And I woke up at night, and, and I was like having a deja vu moment because it looked like there was headlights shining on my fish rack and I get up and I grab my rifle and I walk over there and you carry your rifle everywhere right and so it was just something that I just didn't understand and all the fish were glowing in the dark and what it was was if if you cut these chum salmon and it's dry weather and they're undercover they dry on the surface just like the meat does and there's no bacterial action that goes on and so they don't glow but if you cut them and you get a rainy period, you know, kind of foggy and drizzly and wet, then it doesn't dry on that surface. And these bacteria that have been inoculated on every one of these fillets starts growing. And if it's photobacteria, they grow. Well, I didn't know it was bacteria or photobacteria or anything. I didn't understand it at the time. But when I came to the university and took uh, uh, microbiology with Dr. Joan Braddock, I figured out that's got to be bacteria. That's got to be photobacteria. And so when I was out at Rapids in this first thing I was doing with chum salmon, doing mark recapture with chum salmon in the late 90s, I noticed that uh, Stanzerace fish rack 
was glowing in the dark at one point. He had been cutting a bunch of chum salmon for his dogs, and uh, they were glowing in the dark. And I says, you know what? I want to send one of these to Joan to be able to do something with a, a grad student or whatever, you know. So I packaged a couple of them up and sent them into town with a, a plane that had come out. And my wife took them and gave them to Joan. And it took a couple of times because they, they got delayed and, and other things happened with the first batch. But the second batch came here and, and Joan with a, a grad student, uh, I think it's Kevin Budsberg, uh, um, took these fillets and they, um, they put them in conditions that would promote this growth still. And then they started sampling uh, these things. And they actually did genetic analyses and uh, um, growth analyses. Bacteria are really different than, than like uh, uh, some of the vertebrates or invertebrate uh, higher multicellular life forms in that they are classified based on the conditions that they can grow in and, and other things like that. But uh, anyway, these, um, these photobacteria required very specific conditions to grow. And uh, they were able to classify that and they did genetic analysis and showed that they were essentially identical to ones that had been identified in the sea. They hadn't ever found these photobacterium in fresh water before. So they were able to classify these things, identify what they were, and uh, they proposed that they must be wrapped up in their, in their slime layer because they can't take fresh water directly. They die in fresh water. Huh. So uh, in any case, there was a management action. This is kind of a silly story. Well, it's a, it was not really silly, but it's kind of an interesting story. There was a, uh, um, a management action in the fall chum salmon fishery in the lower Yukon uh, one year, it, it had to be right around 2000, 99 or 2000, maybe 2001, it, it, when the chum salmon were at a low population level in the Yukon, they stopped the fishery in the lower river for a period of time and then they, and then they allowed it again. And the, it was a long enough period of time that they were starting to get nighttime down there because normally they cut their fish and it doesn't get night. It doesn't get all the way dark. And you can't see these glowing things if it's, you know, even, you know, d d twilight. You can't see them. It has to be dark. And so there were a number of different communities down there that had whole racks full. And they had had some rainy weather. And their racks were glowing and they freaked out. And some people threw fish into the, into the water. They got <laughs> Tananot Chiefs down there to, uh, uh, somebody from Tananot Chiefs to investigate. They took samples and gave them to Ted Myers who is this state pathologist uh, dealing with fish. And so, so I, had, I got into the office one day and I got calls from a news organization in Yellowknife and uh, uh, people down in Anchorage and, and, and a, a news organization from Whitehorse asking me about this. Well, it turns out that somebody that knew I had, I had supplied these glowing fish to Joan uh, earlier uh, had told these guys that this was, that I'm the one to talk to if they want to know about it. And so, um, meanwhile, Tanner Chiefs is demanding that Ted Myers give him action, you know, some sort of information, you know, is this contamination? Is it at the time there was that Russian nuclear sub that had sunk over in the Barents Sea? <laughs> and there were all these theories going around, you know, and, and, uh, and anyway, 
So I called I called Ted Myers up and I told him, you know, we've we've sorted this out. You need to talk to Dr. Braddock, you know, and so that you don't have to start from scratch in this because it would be a big process to start from scratch. And he was able to provide some comfort that this wasn't an anomaly or a contamination or anything like that to these folks. And uh, it made, I don't know if it made everything better, but it, it <laughs> but, but the fluke of being, uh, of not being able to fish when they normally would fish, when they would never see it, even if it was glowing in the dark, to, to some later date when it was dark and they could see it was, right. uh, was what tipped the balance there. Because everybody in the upper drainage knew about it. So is, is that, oh, really, okay. Is that technically bioluminescence then or not? Well, they call them photobacterium. So it's, it is a chemical reaction that stimulates the, the light. But it's only in the ocean-dwelling bacteria. Well, I don't know how widespread among bacteria in the ocean is, but there are photobacterium in the, in the ocean. Okay. You know, some of the deep-dwelling uh, uh, fish, you know, like the lanternfish, they actually harbor glowing bacteria in their in pores, and they can open those pores so that uh, that that the light emits from these bacteria that they're essentially farming that's in their crazy. pores. Yeah, yeah. I've never thought about the the source of it, the science of it. So that's that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I was snorkeling in Belize, um, diving, uh, snorkeling and diving. But anyways. It, one of the scariest things I ever did, and neatest things, was the the guide had us turn off all of our lights at night down about ten feet, and the luminescence was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really and cool. and I think those are, are algae. Uh, I may be wrong, but but I think there's I think a number right. of different uh, um, single-celled organisms that will produce bioluminescence. Huh. Yeah. So if you were down diving. Or snorkeling in the Yukon, would would you be able to see this? No. Okay. No, I don't think. I think they're so spread out on the surface that they, you would not see it on the surface. the The issue is that when you cut fish on a table gotcha. over and over, they're getting all of them are getting inoculated, and and then if you have wet weather, they grow. Gotcha. And so they become concentrated enough that they you see it. That's fascinating. Yeah. Neat stuff. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. I have a feeling that uh, we might ask you back here if you've got a lot of neat <laughs> tales to, to tell. I bet there's a story or two of uh, uh, your days in the, the bush that would be a podcast worthy. So, well, now there might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were in intermission, we were talking about tripod butchering for moose. So that that might be of interest to that technique alone. But thanks for your time, Randy. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.